welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Dr. Tom Deans. Tom is an expert and full-time speaker on the subject of estate planning and family succession planning. He's also authored several books, including Every Family's Business in 2008, which is, which is a New York Times bestseller at 1.3 million copies and still the best-selling book on exit planning. I brought him on to discuss an almost universal topic about exiting your business, especially when there's family involved. And with that, here's my interview with Tom. Hello, Tom. Jason, good morning. How are you? Very well. Thanks for taking the time. Great to be here. And I love this subject. Yes, no doubt. Well, you are the <laughs> quote unquote man when it comes to this subject. So uh, Dr. Tom Deans is a expert on state and family succession planning and a full-time speaker on the subject. And I brought him on specifically to deal with this because so many Canadian businesses, and sorry, just forget Canadian, businesses around the world struggle with the dynamics of this. So Tom, why don't you tell your story and tell us about your book as well while you're at it. Well, sure, Jason. I was born into a family business, as was my father and grandfather. There's, uh, it's something that it's all I know, quite frankly. I had a career in banking. I did a, a number of other things before I got that call from my father, who turned 65 and uh, was looking to have lunch. And it was at that lunch where he talked about whether or not I wanted to join the firm. And I was 37 at the time, so quite late in the world of family businesses, where you know usually children are coming out of right out of college or university or high school, and they're going right into the family business, kind of all they knew. I actually had a had a career outside of the family business, which made things, which makes my story interesting. I joined that business. I ran that business for eight years as CEO and we sold it. We sold it actually on February 8th, 2007, which was extraordinary timing. And I got to tell you, we're not that smart. We were just really, really <laughs> lucky. <laughs> to find and monetize. We were, we were a Canadian plastics company. We were really, really lucky to have that event. So I was in my mid-40s when we had that exit. And it occurred to me that our family had done that a couple of times prior, that we had involved family, we had started businesses, we'd grown them, scaled them, and we had always sold them. We've never gifted our operating businesses to our kids. We've always asked them to purchase them. In the fullness of time, that didn't happen, and they got sold. And so I thought, I worked for the new owners for six months. I like to say I served a six-month sentence for a crime I didn't commit. I mean, it was it was a brutal it was a brutal chapter of my life, and it is for most business owners who sell their business and then find themselves having to work for someone often for the first time in their lives. And after six months, I said, "Look, go home. There's nothing for you to do." We had actually built a business that really wasn't reliant on myself. So I thought I got to write this. I got to write this story. I got to write this book. This book that carries a different idea that there's no shame in selling a business. In fact, that ought to be the goal. And as I started to dig into the data, it became pretty clear that only 20% of family businesses or any business in, in North America is sold. 20%. Only 20% of owners who have risked their capital, built something, poured their energy, their time and efforts into something, only 20% will ever experience that magic moment when someone slides a check across the table. So I thought, I'm going to write this book. And that little book carrying that little idea that you never gift an operating business to your kids, they need to buy it at full market value, just took off. It took off. It particularly resonated with the leading edge of the baby boomers who in 2008, 2009, were just starting to turn 65. And that book just took on a life of its own, which led to a full-time speaking career. And uh, that was a thousand speeches in 26 countries ago. It's just the book just won't stop. And 1.3 million copies later. So I'm going to plug you on that one. 
So that book is Every Family's Business, and it's available anywhere you would look for it. And I highly, highly encourage it because not only have I read it and liked it, I've actually had clients randomly discover it before we got to that stage of the conversation and say, this really spoke to me. So you did a great job with that, Tom. Well, thank you. Now, let's talk about an interesting point you made there first off. We've made several interesting points. So the first one I want to focus in on is one of the core messages, which, which is don't give or gift the business to the next generation. Make them buy it. So let's talk about what your viewpoint on that, well, what triggered that viewpoint and why you feel that resonates so much with everybody? I think culturally, it's just weird taking money from your children. Like, I know you've got kids, Jason, so Very young ones, yes. you will soon come to know that money seems to flow the other way. And then- I have child care in Toronto, trust me, I'm well aware of it. I know you do. So I write this book and I say, you know, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is this, this idea that they need to earn their way through life. If you equip them, raise them well, and and equip them with, with the basic ideas that hard work, saving more than you spend, like basics, the power of compounding interest, but also the, the importance of taking risk in business. And often what happens in family businesses is we actually deny them that very last piece. We don't ask them to risk their capital. In fact, what we do is we overpay them, we discount the shares, or even worse, we do nothing and we leave them with this idea that all they have to do is work long enough in the family business and wait for someone to die. So think about that. You've got literally tens of thousands of children working in Canadian businesses who believe that their only hope for voting control is for someone that they love and care about to die. Like, yeah, think, think about, about the, the conflict that, that that raises in day to day. Because I mean, businesses are highly emotional things when you're running them. Completely. Partnerships are very, very tricky to maintain. Now, it's even worse when you throw family dynamics on top of that. And you know, you're absolutely right. So the only time I'm ever going to control my own destiny is when dad dies or exactly. mom dies. Like, give me a break. Or even worse, not only when dad dies, because I'm pretty sure, although I don't know, because our family will talk about succession planning, which, by the way, they really just talk about management succession planning. They never really talk about yeah. how shares are going to move, the voting shares. Exactly. And so that there's silence. And so often when dad dies, statistically, guys die first, the shares go to mom. Yeah. So really, the, the, idea, the idea is that the only way you're going to get voting control of the businesses, you got to wait for both your parents to die. Well, what a horrific idea that is. Yep. No, so I, I wrote the book to help families start the most difficult and vexing conversation of all time, which is how will this thing transition? And that's all the 12 questions in every family's business does is it gives families that, that starting point. And I really actually, what I, what I say is really after the 12 questions, there's really not much more to talk about because it covers issues around control, voting control, compensation, performance review, all the things that families skip over in family businesses. And yep. Just and you jumped ahead on me because I was going to get to the 12 questions because it's interesting because even in your book, you basically say, okay, read the book, but then come back to these 12 questions every year. So really, it's the last chapter that really is the, is the bread and butter here. Um, yeah, it's, it's an so, irritating feature of the book all the way through the book. One of the characters in the book, uh, the, this is just a book about two people who have a chance encounter. Right. They sit beside each other on a plane, right? And they get into the scotch and they start confessing about what, they, what went well and what went terribly awry in their family business. And then the young guy, William, okay, that's my middle name. I did a terrible job hiding <laughs> Myself in the narrative, William decides to share 12 questions that his father asked him to help them transition their business smoothly. So all the way through the book, William keeps referring to these 12 questions. And John, the guy sitting beside him, this older guy goes, like, what are these 12 questions? And he goes, hang on, I'm getting to them. I'm getting to them. You got to get all the way through the book, right to the very last chapter. It's, it's deeply irritating, but it is a classic publishing writing hook, right? 
build the crescendo and keep people reading to the very end. And that's where the 12 questions are revealed. It's a really fun read, two hours. And I promise I, the book never leaves families quite the same. No, because the reality is, is somewhere along this narrative, you will find something that as a business owner in a family business, you have experienced. You have experienced that frustration. You've experienced that difficulty. You've experienced those questions in your own mind. And people pick it up and read it and say, oh, my God, this is exactly what I've done. Maybe not the entirety, but the least part of it. And what is remarkable, you know, when I, as you know, as you reference my bio, I'm a speaker. And when I speak, I then sign books and then people, I feel like a priest. People are confessing their sins and all their, what has gone wrong in their family business. And, and they're telling me these stories like they are the only ones that are experienced. And I, I don't have the heart to tell them that I have heard a version of their story literally tens of thousands of times. It is the patterns, whether I'm speaking in Costa Rica or Europe or Asia, I think I mentioned just before the podcast started, I'm off to, uh, off to, uh, to Saudi Arabia. I mean, it is unbelievable cross-culturally, the similarity in themes across industries, agriculture, manufacturing, the same issues that are confronting families. And the amount of family ownership in Canada, it sounds like we're just talking about like a little sliver of the business in the market. Nine out of 10 firms are family owned and controlled. And only 30% will make it to the second generation. And only 3% will make it to the third generation. So any business owner founders who are listening to this podcast, they got a 3% chance of their business making it to their grandchildren. Yeah. And in fairness, that's not necessarily the grandchildren's fault. We spoke about this previously about sometimes, you know, the business, the industry just changes, right? That kind of industry just fades away and is replaced by something new or the the makeup of, of their infrastructure surrounding them, you know, plants or manufacturing moving to another country and therefore you no longer have someone to buy your goods locally. Those things happen, right? So it's not necessarily the family's fault, but you know, it's one of these things that's fallacy to think that these things are going to go on forever and not contemplate some of the questions that you, that you ask. Now, I'm alluding to the questions. We'll get to them in a minute. Some of the questions that you ask, because these are serious things people have to consider at all times. Well, it's interesting you say that because, Jason, I think what happens is the previous generation designs quite unwittingly the business to actually to fail in the hands of the next generation. It's not their desire, but it is their, it is this idea of gifting the voting shares that makes it very difficult for the next generation to innovate inside the business. I mean, I, I often say to my audiences, has anyone in the audience inherited a watch, a painting? something from a grandparent or an aunt or uncle, you know, and people put up their hands. And then I ask them, did you take that watch and go to a pawn shop and sell it? What did you do? And they go, well, I, you know, I cleaned it. I kept it in a safe place for the next generation. It's like, did you hear that? A family Mm -hmm. business that is gifted is treated the same way. The next generation doesn't feel like they have the authentic permission to change or pivot or alter the business model or platform because they didn't buy it. It's not theirs to change. So they keep it just like the watch. They keep it just like they found it. It's interesting because I've I've had the privilege of sitting down with some very, very wealthy people in this country that were from very large prestigious families that are three or four generations deep into passing on businesses. And it's interesting because their view of wealth is a combination of two things. A, preserving wealth. But it's interesting the way they look at it is they're not concerned about preserving the business. They're concerned about preserving wealth for the next generation. So they become those truly successful ones have, I think, at least addressed some of the questions in your book regarding sale and time of sale because they view the wealth as being the important aspect, not the identity surrounding the business. 
and what dad built because at some point they all run their course. Well, um, bingo. Absolutely. Yeah. Bingo. Absolutely nailed it. And yeah. and the dynastic families do nail it. They don't get emotional about what about their operating businesses. They understand that at the end of the day, that operating business represents one stock. And the companies yeah. that make or the families rather that make that leap from single operating business to broadly held uh, holding companies with diversified assets, many hundreds or thousands of operating companies, those are the successful yeah. families because they made, they you, made the leap. The second piece of that was when I when I asked these people, because I'm always fascinated by how these things succeed. Basically, what do you do to the kids to make sure that you've taught them the right lesson? <laughs> they look at me all the time. It's like simple. Don't give them anything, right? Like make them earn every last piece. You think my you think my parents give me anything? And I sit, you know, I've sat across from some people. I've just they say that, and I start doing the math on how much I know they're worth. I'm just like really? <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, well, I, they all, but they all are hungry and have a sense to add to the family's wealth as opposed to just taking over the family's business and lining their pockets. I would agree to a large extent. I think that probably those types of answers from exceedingly wealthy families, multi-generational families is a little disingenuous. I think what they've given them is something more than nothing. What they've given them actually the something more, is something more valuable than money, which is like a fast, free, easy money in some kind of trust fund that, uh, that begins at eight. They actually give them benefit of the family stories. And so dynastic are spending lots of time like the Rockefellers from day one. JD invented, you know, invested heavily in facilitated family meetings. But and in those family meetings, they were telling the stories about how they made their money and how they took risks. And this part is crucial. And how they took risks and how those risks didn't work out. Like they share their failures and their great outcomes, right? So really what they're trying to say is look. In order to make money and beat the street, there's no shortcut. You got to take risks. You got to find that thing that you're really passionate about. You got to find, you got to understand the basics of business. The really successful families teach their children to love business, not to fall in love with one business, but to love commerce. 100% guaranteed. And I'll tell you, the very successful ones I've seen have all made their kids go out and, and either start their own or get involved in other ones before they even consider working within their own family business. So well, that, that, uh, certainly yeah. was, that certainly was my experience. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. So they're not, they're not giving them the trust fund, let them do whatever it is that they want in life. But what they're doing is they're giving them, they're grooming them from day one to basically say that, Hey, and it can be handed to you. And frankly, you have to go out and make it yourself. And Hey, this is how we did it. And we're going to afford you, you know, we're, we're in a privileged position. We're going to afford you every opportunity in the world, but yeah. It's up to you. So those are the tidbits of wisdom there. One funny story before we go to the 12 questions, because uh, we were talking about this earlier, and we, we were discussing how the one place in the world that doesn't seem to have this problem is Japan, because they they will do whatever is necessary to make that family transit or the transition of the business succeed, even to the extent of adopting high-level managers to make sure that they have proper succession planning in place. Not something normal on this side of the world, is it now? <laughs> yeah, and those high-level managers will actually drop their own legal name and take on the family's name so that the family will still be able to say that it is, you know, 19 generations old. Like it is, it is actually absurd and ridiculous, but in their culture, I mean, it makes sense to them for obvious reasons. It's not to cultural judgment, but you can see the emotional pull and the power of that pull for even business owners in this country to pursue the longevity of their business above even profits. And it is really was the impetus for me to write the book because I come at this completely the opposite and say it is the goal of every business owner actually to find the finality of their business, to find its end, defined as its sale to someone. And I am completely agnostic. I, I love it when families sell inside the family to a family member at full market value or outside. I'm really 
indifferent. But what I am just absolutely opposed to, and I'm getting actually more dogmatic as time goes on, and I was pretty dogmatic when I wrote the book 10 years ago, but you look at the data and you see just how dangerous it is to gift a business and make it easy and create economic incentives for people to make decisions to continue in a business that should actually be sold. It's at the end of its productive life cycle. Absolutely. And sometimes just having the conversation about the permission for that, that child to basically get rid of it, it just happens. So I've been, we've been teasing the 12 questions long enough. Let's jump into them. I actually grabbed your book off the shelf because we're in this remotely. And I have it in front of me as a cheat sheet. But you want me to, how about I call them out and you yeah, sure. the support? So sure. question one, what does our family business look like in five years? Yeah, the reason the order of the questions of the 12 questions are, are really important. So really what, we're tr- what I'm trying to do here is this is a pretty gentle question to ease into a conversation between a uh, son or daughter and, and maybe their parent who's the controlling shareholder, right? Because everyone has the opportunity to then answer the question, like, what does this business look like in five years? Now, I say to people all the time, if a son or daughter were to answer this question this way, oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know, dad. I think the business in five years will be bigger and stuff. And stuff. Love what I say to that business owner is, dude, that is not the language of the next generation of owners. Do not proceed to question number two. You don't have a, that, that is not the answer. You know what you're looking for? Wow, that's a really interesting question. I'm glad you asked. What's the business look like in five years? Well, if you're asking and you want an honest answer, first of all, I would sell that division. It's got negative gross margin. I know it's your, it has your original product line, but it is a complete disaster. I'm taking on senior management responsibility and I'm inheriting all sorts of really old managers. I know that you were your friends. They started with you, but the reality is they're not performing and they're expensive. Any other company would have restructured and moved on. So mm-hmm. I would terminate this person's contract, this person, this person. I would hire two smarter people. We need more online marketing. Online marketing, that's that thing called the internet. The next gen, when they have their own ideas, and many of those visions for the five years are in contrast with the controlling shareholder, their parent, that's not a problem. That's an opportunity. That's why it's question number one. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, and that, that question is a litmus test in a lot of ways for just both parties' general level of involvement in the business in their mindset, right? If they're not, if both people aren't passionately talking about it and the future of it, then frankly, that's a sign that it's time for one of them to potentially, or both, to potentially think of something else. Yeah, so question two, uh, if both the owner and child or key employee own shares, are you interested in selling your stock? If, so, if yes, to whom? Yeah, so this question is, uh, this is a really powerful question. And you can see what makes these questions so difficult is that they're, they really require yes and no answers. Like there's no room to equivocate. Like that's, are you interested in selling your stock? So this question, remember, is going to the controlling shareholder. So really, all 12 questions are trying to bring clarity to the relationship. And this question is at the front end as well, because I want the next gen to know that if their parent, the controlling shareholder, answers this question, no then you're working in a business where the controlling shareholder has no interest in ever relinquishing control, or certainly not right now. So just eyes wide open, right? There's a lot of kids who are making assumptions like, one day all this will be mine. So right at the front end of these 12 questions, the parent, the controlling shareholder is being asked, are you interested in selling your stock? Yes. Or no. If the answer is yes, man, you got a seller. You may enjoy your job in the family business. You may also have the opportunity to purchase the stock. 
Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, uh, what comes to mind is going back to Japan. There's that Netflix uh, documentary about that one like ninety something year old sushi master who basically his son has been understudying him for like fifty years and is seventy something years old and is just waiting for dad to retire so he can be the sushi master. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that ain't retiring. I think about how many years the guy has waited and how fruitless that's going to feel at the end. You've raised an interesting point because people are living, business owners in Canada, especially men, that demographic is is living longer. Like we're adding tagging on years at the end like never before. And mm-hmm. so we, we talked about how death was a triggering event for the transition of the business. Well, now you've got, you've got kids in their 60s waiting for their parents in their 80s, die. Like, yeah. And if anything, capacity is going to become the triggering event at this point. Absolutely. And right, so you've got succession plans that are just being, the can is just being kicked down the road and no one knows how to start the conversations. No one knows how to accelerate it. And quite frankly, and not to be overly critical on lawyers and accountants, but we have business owners turning to the most trusted advisor, which is accountants in Canada and lawyers Mm -hmm. second. And what they're getting when they ask the question, what should I do with my business? You have a built-in bias. I mean, let me ask you the question, Jason. If you're the accountant and the business gets sold, what happens to to the file? Well, because they didn't typically build a relationship with the kid, it goes to the kid's account. So yeah, or to the new owner's account. So the answer is yeah, they got a built-in bias. They don't want to be fired. They don't want to sold. They don't want to sold. So what they do is they go to, I mean, this is a sweeping generalization. There are some amazing accountants and accounting firms that really understand that doing an estate freeze, which is what they do, they go right to the page in the playbook, the oldest worn out page in the playbook, which is we should do an estate freeze, right? Freeze the value of those common shares and uh, issue new new pref shares, voting shares. So mom and dad get, get to control that family business right to their very last breath. And the children who are working and toiling hard in the family business will get the growth. They get the new common shares, the growth. And of course, we all know that businesses only go up in value, right? <laughs> Nothing ever drops in value like Canadian no, real estate. Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. So we have, we have this built-in bias for longevity, and it's an unwitting bias. It's, I'm not painting a nefarious plot by accounts to destroy family businesses. They're just often unaware, and they're looking at the financial returns of family businesses and thinking, why would you ever sell this, this amazing investment? It's, it's producing 20% returns. I mean, way better than your, your mutual funds. So you have this built-in bias to keep these operating businesses and thrusting them into the hands of often ill-prepared and reluctant heirs. Yeah. And, and you know what? Again, every industry runs its course. I'm sure that buggy whip operators had 20% returns also, but if you can't see what's coming on the horizon. It's you're, you're not going to sell out when you're still you still at a, a peak value. That's really what it should be about. So, uh, third question: Are you interested in buying stock and acquiring control? Yes or no? Yeah. So this is a this is asking you know the next gens. How much really do you love this? You may love your job and your income, but really, do you want to buy the stock based on really a you know a third party valuation? And it is shocking how few next gens actually want to buy their parents' business. It's just, it's not their dream. It's not their passion. Some do. Like some really are, actually some are better educated, harder working, have their own ideas and like they're all in. And it's a great alignment. I see this a lot in the farming industry. Like like some kids really are going to take that you know, head start and they're going to buy it. But I can tell you the vast majority, they don't want the ownership. They've watched what their parents have gone through and they don't want that. They want something different from, well, they got a different passion. Yeah. So these first three, you can see first three questions, man, we like, you're diving right into the core of the, of the message of the book, which is really, do you have a buyer and seller in the house? 
do you have do you have someone who wants to sell do you have someone who wants to buy do you have a future transition plan and there's no right or wrong answer all there is is clarity so growing ups adults get to make grown up decisions together collaboratively yeah and you're, you've uncovered i think it's, these are the wise three questions you've uncovered if you can't answer yes to those and be a final line in those questions you have a massive problem right like you have a massive problem if you think that this business is going to be passed on to the next generation because they may be disengaged. They are not interested in paying for it. Like if these are all, or oh, they're not interested in controlling it. If these are all no's, like why are we progressing down the rest of the book? Like we already have an issue. So let's let's move on to question four. Do you understand and agree that in the interest of maximizing shareholder value, this business can be sold to a third party at any time? Yeah, I like to make this uh, this point really clear. There's lots of next gens who are doing answering question number three the previous question they're saying yeah i do want to buy the stock but obviously i'm young and i don't have a lot of money so i'm going to buy like one percent that's all i can afford i've only got like five thousand bucks or ten thousand bucks i bought one share but then they get a dividend from that one share and the time goes on and they're saving and they they buy two shares and five shares and eight shares like often the next gen purchasing their parents business is a slow it's a long tail it's a slow process but often what can happen right in the middle of that is I don't know, some major event to the business, some trauma to the business, loss of a major customer, foreign exchange, a fire, something big comes along. And both agree that they can shift and sell to a third party. And it's just getting people to acknowledge that, that even though I'm buying this business, this thing can be sold to, to someone in the open market at a higher price. Business is business. Yeah, and the cynical view is quite honestly, you know, everything in this world has a price on it. Just the question whether you want to agree to it or not. Sooner or later, someone if someone basically threw more money than made any sense to you on the table, what would you say? I mean, the vast majority of us would be hard-pressed, even if it caused stress, to say no to that. Well, a lot of them do say no to that because they, they think that their business is their legacy. Yeah, and they meanwhile, their kids may not be on the same page. You know, and this, it's not just in businesses. We see this happen with cottages and other family things where essentially parents will struggle to maintain these things for the next generation. And then, you know, the kids are like, well, I don't even want this, but she insists on doing it or he insists on doing it. You know, you're opening up communication and making sure that people do really want it, which is valuable. Yeah, no, it, it's so true. And I mean, let me ask you a question, Jason. Who was the founder of Coca-Cola? Oh, what is his name? Uh, I know he didn't make, you know, he makes what? What's his name? Uh, Pemberton, Robert Pemberton. Is that right? Is it? I don't know. I can seriously, when I'm giving a speech with 5,000 people in my audience, 100, 500, it doesn't matter. It's crickets. No one knows. I can't believe you're the first that. person to get that. <laughs> yeah. No one knows. No one cares. Third most cons valuable consumer brand in the world. No one knows who the founder of Coca-Cola is. No one even Googles it. Like it, it's shocking how business owners think that their greatest work of art, their business is going to stand the test of time and be their greatest work of art, achievement and legacy. And I'm like, dude, you have no idea. No one is going to remember Larry's tool and die. Like no one. John no Smith one. Pepperton. He was actually, he created, long story, he created the formula. But the Coca-Cola Bottling Corporation was created by someone else, and that's the guy who made the real money. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, a lot of a lot of people. I, the closest I've ever got to an audience member getting it right was someone says he, he was a pharmacist, and, that uh, is and, true. and then someone will pipe in and think, you know, it's Dr. Pepper. But no, Dr. Pepper is not. Yeah, no, right. it's first guy I got it. You are the first guy to get that. That is shocking. There we go. Question five. I agree that within sixty days, I will put in place special compensation formula for my child slash employee key employee in the event that the business is sold in the next five years. 
Yeah, so this is this is crucial. Uh, often business owners invite their children into their business and they effectively paint themselves into a corner. Now they have their family, their children deriving a lifestyle, uh, an income from their business. And then, of course, the phone rings. Maybe it's an unsolicited offer from a third party to, or a competitor, strategic buyer. How do you sell a business when without feeling like you're selling your family? down the river. So when what these questions are doing is really getting people to understand that, hey, this thing is for sale all the time, right? This thing is always, so by joining this firm, you're actually taking a risk just as you are if you joined any other firm. Any other firm can be sold. Like there's nothing that gives kind of a special dispensation to family businesses that they won't be sold. It just, it really, this question around compensation really says that we can align our interests, right? We can align our interests if we sell this business, it's not like mom and dad get rich and junior loses their job. It's like, if that happens, here's how you can be compensated. And I'll tell you, for business owners, this is crucial because if you sell your business and you've got your children in key positions of authority or responsibility management, and they don't have this in place, often kids just, they just bolt for the door. Yep. And there's, and no, man- there's just- no management left. And they take money from escrow. Like the buyers, the seller doesn't get his full entitlement. And the family is broken and distressed and never repaired. And, and so so you can see that if this question around compensation in the context of the sale of the business is not addressed, one of two things happens. The business doesn't get sold or two, it does get sold and it's a complete disaster. The transition into the hands of the new owner is a disaster and the owner doesn't get his full sale price. And that happens all the time. We've all heard these horror stories of the kids like, well, I got nothing. New management comes in and they want me to stick around. And then dad's like, you got to stay there because if you don't, I'm going to lose half a million dollars in escrow. And it's like, well, you're not even paying me a fraction. Like, you know, these conflicts are very, very real. So let's move on to number six. As a fundamental principle, I understand that from time to time, we will receive unsolicited offers from a third party to acquire the business. These offers will be considered and accepted at the discretion of the controlling shareholder and supported by blank key employee's name or child. Yeah, so the thought behind this question is really to remind uh, next gents who are purchasing their parents' business, not to dither, that every day, month, year that goes by where they do not have definitive voting control, the business is in the marketplace really effectively open to other offers. So this question really holds the next gen's feet to the fire. It really gets them to have to acknowledge that even though you're buying this business, this thing can be sold to someone else at any time. Please acknowledge that idea. When that does happen, if it does happen, you're not going to be shocked. So it really tries to accelerate that internal sale. And it should. I mean, frankly, you have to be on the same page. Otherwise, you know, know, a lot of this is almost like prenup thinking, right? Like, you know, or partnership level thinking. You solve these problems before you have the problem. Like, that's it. Like, let's let's start with an open, clean slate. But what you do that's smart is people are supposed to revisit this on an annual basis because these things change as they should. So in preparation for the annual update of this blueprint, I will arrange for an updated valuation of the business and will calculate whether there is an appropriate amount of insurance in place. I will furnish evidence that this has been done and the estate taxes will not impair the ability of this corporation to function after my death. You know, I, I like this question. You know, I'm also- So does every insurance advisor in the country. Continue on. Well, yeah, and they <laughs> For should. For reason. Yeah. They should. I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time professional speaker. I don't sell, I'm not licensed. I don't sell insurance. I don't sell investment products. But this question around insurance, it is shocking how cheap business owners are when it comes to insuring the retained earnings, the equity in their business. I mean, that's what happens. Let's walk through the scenario. Business owner dies. Guy. Guys die first. Shares go to surviving spouse. Let's assume there's no shareholder agreement and no minority partners. Shares go to a spouse. This is very common in the farming sector. And manufacturing, huge problems in manufacturing, even in software. Shares go to surviving spouse. 
She dies a couple of years later trying to run the business. She doesn't have the relationships with the lenders, the suppliers, the customers. A lot of the key employees see this happen, the share transition. They bolt for the door. They're nervous about their future. Now the business fails or mom dies and the shares go down to the kids. There's probably no will. 50% chance of no will. So now the provincial formula kicks in, thrusting all the children in business together as equal partners. So good news is they get a free business. They get a free business from last to survive, right? Their parent or last parent dies. They get a free, all the shares go to the kids in equal amounts. Then they get a letter from CRA. And you know what that letter says? You owe this massive amount of money. Yeah. It doesn't say, we're sorry to hear about your loss. It says, you owe us this. Those founders, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the founders, original shares are worth a dollar. Fast forward today, business owners who are listening right now, what's your current share price? If you can't answer that question, you don't know how much capital gains exposure you've got. Maybe not you, but your children on Last to Survive. And so where do the kids go for cash to pay the tax on their personal holdings of that new brand new free family business? They reach into the corporation for free cash flow to pay their personal tax bill, and it's not there, and the business fails. And then everyone reads about that in the local newspaper, and we all rush to judgment that all next-generation kids are lazy spendthrifts. They're probably millennials. They have no drive. They blew up their parents' business. It drives me crazy. I mean, the responsibility for that transition plan was with the business owner. They really just didn't give a damn. They basically look at it and they say, oh, that's expensive. Well, expensive compared to the what? Like you're still going to pay a fraction of the total tax bill, especially given the way the tax code works surrounding corporately owned insurance policies. You do this right and you're paying a fraction. And you know, I had Trevor Perry on the show specifically talking about pipeline planning and just how lucrative, well, lucrative the savings can be. And I've had people reply, well, you know, we can just suck it up and pay out of cash flow for a couple of years. And it's like, so you're going to impair a hundred percent of the free cash flow of the firm for like five years, assuming nothing goes wrong to pay out a deceased person. Now, here's, I don't know about you, but especially if I'm the one who's passed away, and this is a partnership, maybe there's more than one family member involved in the partnership. I want my side of the family with their cash the second I die. I don't want them waiting five years to receive the entire payout because I understand there's business risk. Well, most business owners don't have family meetings and they don't walk through the scenario of their death. And so all of this is being revealed while family siblings are grieving the loss of their last parent. And all it takes is one to lawyer up. And you can see why so many family businesses are ending in court, fighting over the estate. Kids outside the business want their cash. Kids inside the business are going, hey, the business doesn't have any cash. I don't have any cash. I can't pay you out. And here we go again. And and then we wonder why only 30% of family businesses survive to the second generation. the current premier of Ontario is embroiled in one of these lawsuits. Oh, the, the list is long. We yeah. could spend the next hour talking about the Eatons and never mind family businesses, oh, yeah. but the Nortels and the amount of business destruction that takes place. We, no one talks about it, writes about it, or really wants to understand how temporary and frail all businesses are. And that even if you had a great 30-year run, there's no guarantee that the next 30 are going to be anything like the lot, the previous 30. So really, this book was really contrarian, and some would call it controversial, but because it was going right into the lion's den and, and blowing up a lot of these ideas that it's your job as a family business owner to give your business to your kids and perpetuate your legacy. That's such crap. It's no. such nonsense. Not only that, so they, got, they get born to you and their destinies decided because they were born to you? I mean, I, I, I don't know. That takes away their any concept of free will or, or basically control over their own lives and destiny. So yeah, I get it. The average search firm executive will tell you that they start with literally thousands of resumes to find the best CEO. 
right? Yeah. And they have a process for whittling that down to the top 10 candidates. Then massive a number of just telephone conversations, face-to-face -face interviews, whittle that down to three candidates, then boom, you find your best CEO in Canada for your family, for your business, starting mm -hmm. from a pool of thousands of resumes. Now you tell me in a family business, from a pool of two kids, the likelihood, <laughs> statistic likelihood that you're going to find the best CEO for that business. No, exactly. And, and then they, everyone, right? It's if, what Buffett called the lottery of the womb. <laughs> it's, I've, I've not heard that. But you can see, right, Jason? You can just see yes. why so few family businesses survive and why Absolutely. so many try. Yeah, genetic, just, unfortunately, business savvy is not something that's passed on genetically. It's a trained and learned behavior that also is very, very specific to people's individuality. So it's a recipe that doesn't always work. So on to question eight, list at least three items in each of the following four categories that could affect the health of your business over the next five years. And what you've done here is a SWOT analysis. The strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Yeah, so basic SWOT analysis. Uh, obviously, I didn't invent that, uh, that process, but it is a great great little exercise for family businesses to do, uh, a parent and a child to go through a SWOTA. It's very interesting. The strengths and opportunities, it's really interesting. The person who's got less risk in the business will have a much longer list of strengths and opportunities. People, particularly aging business owners, can see the weaknesses and the threats to the businesses much clearer because they've got more to lose. It's really interesting for parents and children to compare their lists of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. This is actually a really, really interesting exercise. Agreed. And frankly, something that should be happening on a regular basis anyway as part of business plan. But as we know, that typically does not happen. So this is a good, frankly, a really good excuse to, to basically do that at a great discussion point. So question nine, to secure our future to secure our future prosperity together, should we either A, continue to run the business and invest more money in our company, or B, practically pursue the sale of our company? Yeah, so as you know, you can fund growth of a business through one of two ways, through debt or equity. And so what this question is, is getting at, and by the way, money, capital is just the blood, right? It's the blood of a business. And so if you're starving a business of capital, it's not going to grow. And if a business doesn't grow, here's a shocking newsflash. It's going to shrink. Businesses, and I, I bump into this alarmingly more times than, uh, than I want to admit, number of business owners who go, particularly, they're in their 60s, especially in their 70s and 80s, and they think, I like my business exactly the size that it is. Yeah, that's, no, 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 no. It's um, like, dude. You ever, you you ever step you, on a scale? You ever step on a scale? Is it ever the exact same number? Never. The next day? No, it's not, right? Like, that's just, the yeah. world changes around you, and if it's the old saying, if, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not growing and it's hard because it doesn't happen often very quickly, it's very, it can be a really slow drip drip to the bottom. And, or it's, and the old, it's the old joke about bankruptcy. How does it happen? Slowly and then all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So you can, you can see this, this, this question is just really getting at the, how are you, do you have enough confidence in this business to take profits and put it back into the business or to take on new debt? And if the answer is no, you don't, do, you do not need a consultant to tell you that you should get your business ready for sale. You have all the information in the world that you need. You have just expressed a lack of confidence to recapitalize your business. It's not a public declaration that you failed in business. It says you're a wise person and you have got the earliest sign that as the definitive controlling shareholder, it's time to leave. So question 10, within 60 days of completing this blueprint, you will complete a salary and bonus compensation review for blank with child or key employees. Yeah, so the issue of salary and bonus reviews for family 
you know, for a lot of business owners, they'll do it for everyone but family, right? It's like, oh my God, this is just going to end badly. We're not going to talk about money. And I'll tell you right now in family businesses, there is an e- virtually equal percentage of children that are underpaid as overpaid. Like we all think that kids and businesses are just like, they're just so lucky. Lucky sperm club, overpaid, underworked. Listen, there is a lot of exploitation in family business. There's a lot of kids who are working below market rates, doing work and taking on super responsibilities beyond what they ought to be doing. And no one knows how to talk about it. Or if the kids actually have the confidence to raise their compensation as a concern with their parents, you know what they're often told? Relax. Don't worry about it. Or you got to earn it. I love that one. Or you know, I, I struggled for so long. You want the the, the cushy fifty you know, job paying you X number of dollars. I encounter this all the time, right? And it's like you know they got in their mind that they struggle to get to a certain point. They don't see their kids struggling the same way, but their kids doing the work and being underpaid for the market rate. And you know, just I actually just had this conversation last week with someone in this field, and you know, talking about a crazy situation. The father's even gone so far to the extent of saying that, yeah, when you buy this business, you're also going to pay for the business that you help grow and bring in. It's like, well, wait a sec, why did I help grow and bring it in then? Right? Like it's, uh, it can be a tricky, tricky subject. Right. So I just think that often when kids complain to their parents about their salaries, the parents shut that conversation down and say, just relax. Don't worry about yeah. it because one day all this will be yours. Yeah. And they, they it's conflate, they conflate income with equity in the most innocent way, quite naive. And tell me how you're going to reel those words back in and unpromise the free ownership of that business. So my message is, Kids need salary reviews, and we're going to get into the next couple of questions that are dealing with performance reviews and job descriptions, but they need those things. They need the professionalization of a family business. If they don't have them, they start taking shortcuts with the equity, and it's a disaster. Agreed. Question 11. I agree to conduct an annual performance review of blank child or key employee's name. There it is. Yeah. This review will measure performance against mutually agreed and achievable goals and objectives. New goals and objectives will be set every coming year. So basically, a standard performance review. And not taking for granted that it's your kid. Yeah. So if you're not having performance reviews, even for family members, especially for family members, then you're leaving your children in a performance vacuum. What kid is going to go out and borrow money from a bank to buy their parents' business when they feel like a failure in that business because they've never had any feedback on their performance? Exactly. Further than that, how are they to ever believe that they're living up to the expectation of the parent? And, you know, all these other, you know, so the the questions around compensation and everything else we just discussed. A lot of them are just linked to feedback mechanisms, right? And you look at any HR survey, and basically one of the top things that employees want is feedback. So that is no different for your own family. Yep. Okay. And now on to the final question. Within 60 days of completing this blueprint, I will present an up-to-date job description to all family members, key employees, slash key employees, working in the business that clearly describes their duties and responsibilities. I will include an up-to-date organizational chart. Family members and key employees working in the company will adhere to the company's policies and procedures. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing, job description. You get a lot of family members who join the family business, and they just they just take on all of the work, responsibility, legacy of the owner. Even though their job is accounts payable or sales or maybe doing something you know, in the back shop, I don't know. It's weird. The expectations for family members to take on extra responsibilities and not be compensated or acknowledged for that, it's a big problem. They actually voluntarily, in many cases, voluntarily take on this responsibility. And unwittingly, they don't even understand why they're doing it other than they're working for intangibles like family pride and honor and reputation in the community. 
And so the job description is crucial. It says, listen, if we're going to professionalize this family business and treat families like no better or no worse, but with the same kind of rigor and professionalism as any other person, then you need a job description. And here it is. Yeah, excellent. And frankly, this is just actually, and this is a, this is the thing that a lot of smaller or medium-sized family enterprises end up is there's oftentimes sometimes the, the professional structures that would solve for these types of conflicts just aren't put in place, right? So you're encouraging them to professionalize their business. And frankly, this is a valuable tool set because you know when they go to sell that business, guess what? Like the more professional it looks, the better run it looks, the higher the valuation. So it's valuable not just from a succession planning standpoint, but from also I'd say a valuation maximization standpoint. Well, I can tell you that when I was running our family business and as we are getting that business ready for sale, I can tell you that the ultimate buyer of the business in the due diligence, some of the things that they're asking for are non-financial. They're looking for organizational charts. They're looking for three years of job descriptions and three years of performance reviews. Mm-hmm. And they want them right away. Like facts oh, at all. Yeah. If, well, you, longer you, if you don't have that stuff, that. you're not going to get a premium. You're not going to get a premium on the multiple mm-hmm. of, of your EBITDA. You're a crappy, disorganized, unprofessional family business. If you want top dollar, if you, and really you and I both know that that's where you make your money in business. It's on the way out. It's not really mm-hmm. a long way. It's really getting a multiple of your free cash flow in one moment. And that's why well, I think when business owners understand that, then they will have a much better exit. And there are some amazing organizations. And I think the premier organization is the Exit Planning Institute out of Cleveland right now, who are doing an amazing job of certifying advisors to be really great resources to help business owners. It's, it's becoming an industry. It's becoming a profession. Yeah. And I'm so heartened to see that because for so long, we've treated business succession planning as a tax issue. That's 15 minutes of work. It is so easy to do the tax piece. This is a complicated, emotional decision to exit your business. And most business owners feel like it's a, it's a very, very solo journey, and it doesn't have to be. There's professionals out there that you need to build a team, and they can help you through the most vexing, challenging issue a business owner will be confronted with. How do I get out? No, and I agree with you. I mean, he saw so many points there. I mean, the litmus test of if you're not organized by the time you're ready to sell, then all you're doing is showing that someone's going to buy a disorganized company. And really, who wants to buy right? Like, no one wants to buy it to create more work for themselves just to clean up a mess that existed prior. And secondly, you're right. You know, the, we, we oftentimes treat it as a tax and planning issue. And that's oftentimes because this has always been traditionally led by the accountants and lawyers who that's what they're there for. But the emotional dynamics of all this, which we, which we touched upon frequently in all this, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's what really determines what direction this is going to go and success after any planning is done. Yeah. You know, if all we expect our children to be is some version of ourselves, we've never have the Ford Motor <laughs> Company. We'd never have the Ford Motor Company. Henry Ford's father was a farmer. Bill Gates' father was a lawyer. We'd never have Microsoft. Steve Jobs' father at one point ran a restaurant. We'd never have that. If all we ask our kids to do is be some version of us, we are denying them the greatest gift a parent can give a child, which is the freedom and the express permission to go off and explore their own unique talents and ambitions and aspirations. That's the great gift of every family's business. So I encourage everybody to pick up the book. It is a good read. I believe it's uh, available everywhere, but tell everybody where they can find you and the books and your other works. Yeah, well, obviously the fastest way of getting the book and with free shipping is is everyfamiliesbusiness.com. 
and uh, that's my website. And yeah, so, and you can also find information on my speaking. I'm a convention speaker. So whether you're a plumber, electrician, uh, uh, making shoes, I've literally spoken to hundreds of industry associations in 26 countries. It's really fun not being conflicted. I don't have a backend service. I don't sell products. So I, I really am very passionate about bringing this very different perspective to business owners and their families all around the world. Fantastic. Tom, thank you again for your time today. And I hope this uh, resonates with a lot of people. And I hope this leads to further book sales for you. But more so, I hope it leads to action. And I hope it leads to various families averting disaster and hopefully monetizing and succeeding their businesses the way they should. The pleasure was mine. Thanks, Jason. So that was my interview with Tom Deans. And frankly, we could have gone for another couple hours talking about the trials and tribulations and horror stories of stuff to be seen and how to hopefully get around it. I hope you found it of value. And I encourage you all to pick up a copy of this book if it spoke to you. And with that, as always, I'm Jason Pereira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. For more episodes, go to jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.